This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I was struck that in your preparation uh, for becoming a filmmaker and in the strategies that you chose for this film, you actually chose a documentary strategy. So I was wondering why you chose that? Why, why, it, why the um, uh, technique and the strategy that you went with was one of documentary filmmaking and interviews, and what that allows you to say that, let's say, a fictional narrative would not allow you to say, although I know that you build fiction in here as well. So. Wow, it's a good question. Um, um, where can I start? Mm. I think what's interesting in this film is actually I was looking for the dream in reality. I was not trying to create a fictional story of my imagination. But because I'm a Palestinian living in the diaspora, and because for many years I lived, I mean, and we say, I say the word Palestine, but I think in what's interesting for me about this film is because I've screened it like for one year, I think we all have this space that we're searching for. So in a way, I was trying to tap onto this area of this utopia, this dream that human beings are searching for. Mm -hmm. In my particular case, it was Palestine. Um, So what was interesting in this film is... um, person living in diaspora, you you really hear a lot of stories about Palestine. And they somehow, they feel like fiction. You live your whole life in a sort of a fiction because I was never allowed to go in. I'm a naturalized Jordanian, so it was the first time I actually went to Palestine was with this film. So, uh, So you grow up on these ideas, and then when you go there and visit for the first time, you're trying to find these ideas. Um, and this became, in a way, um, part of the narrative, is how do we dream, and then how do we create these utopias in our head, and these ideals in our head. And this is a main problem, I think, all over the world, where people have beliefs, and they're not finding them in reality. The reality is very, you know, the opposite of that. For me, what happened with Palestine is whenever I met people, I could always see the strength in people from Palestine. And this all started with uh, Hassan Hurani's book. Is, uh, he did this, Hassan Hurani did this book, and he died uh, 10 days after he completed this book. He was in New York, and he went back to Palestine, and he snuck from the West Bank to Yaffa to swim, and they because they're Palestinians with no ideas, so they sat in an area where no one would come and ask for them. Israelis would come and ask for their ideas. ideas. So they, um, he saw his nephew struggling in the water, and he went in to try and save him, and they both drowned. They were very young. So the death of Hassan became very symbolic for Palestinians, for the idea of just wanting to breathe and stand in front of the sea and take a breath. And... In a way, for me, when I saw the book, I felt the occupation had taken him away from me. He was a beautiful character 
who created a children's book that was, you know, not void of politics. Again, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, where there's this idea of the good and the evil, something like the little prince, the little prince. Mm-hmm. So it's very politicized, but it's a children's book. And I was amazed how someone like Hassan could live uh, under uh, this uh, very horrific scenario and still use the power of his mind and the power of his imagination to rise above the occupation. And I thought this was quite a... And that's where this film started, is I wanted to find the Palestinians... The Israelis are not able to uh, occupy the mind. They can take the horizon and, you know, they can take the land, but there's something inside here that's been going on for so long that the Israelis aren't able, and you see it in a lot of images sometimes, like an old woman and there's an Israeli soldier with a rifle, you know, pointed at her and she's got her slipper and she's going like that. So she's got nothing really and I find this, you know, such an image for example. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the media you see those image, images in the, in the mm-hmm. media but they're rare. So I decided to start looking for these characters and I realized living in Amman you, you have a lot of people coming from Palestine when they're traveling and I had every single Palestinian I had met had been this strong so and then this idea of the Palestinian being presented in the media and how that representation was so different because uh, the Palestinian in the media is presented as a, vic- a weak victim, and I think that's a very political reason why. Because as long as they're weak, you've got a stronger uh, militant army, unbeatable. So the reality when you meet people is very, very different. So this is what the film wanted to discuss. In terms of the, the approach or the treatment of the film, I think, um, well, at least this is my approach. Um, like now when I'm thinking of my new film, I find that I don't have a story. It's not like, oh, this person wants to go from here to the end of the road. I have an idea, and I feel that the film starts... Well, be, discovering the film is discovering the story of the film is also discovering the way in which I want to treat the film, and why I say this is the way I like to work because I think, for example, if you're writing a fictional book, a novel, you can't uh, deconstruct an idea, a concept, without deconstructing the structure as well. They go hand in hand. So that's why, in terms of treatment, I felt that I had to also challenge myself uh, in, in finding a language in this film that's also, you know, it's the same. Like when you say, yeah, a dream is in reality. It's quite a, not an everyday thing. So I couldn't make a classical-looking film and then have a non-classical structure of a story. So the treatment had to go hand-in-hand hand with it. So, so the structure that you found uh, allowed uh, also that you, I mean, you had the story, the almost poetic telling of the story, you had interviews, you had the encounters, you had the photographs that came in, you have the paintings that were hand-painted. So you had all of that being folded into this one, what became the one narrative made up of many narratives. Mm-hmm. And what I'm understanding is that that then compelled you to sort of present it in this way where you're telling a story, but it is a story 
that mm. that follows a documentary uh, structure. You see what I'm saying? That it is. Well, I'm, I'm, at, I'm talking to real people. I'm interviewing a real person. This is not a work of fiction that I made up. Well, right? that's the thing. If you, if we're going to look at documentary being um, representation of reality. That doesn't exist, unfortunately. I mean, there's a lot of documentaries that try to do that. I think it's nonsense, because the second you decide to put your camera in a certain position, you're automatically um, um, changing reality. Fictional. Because, and that idea is like from the 70s. In the 70s, like in the BBC, I met this guy who used to work for document, does documentaries for BBC, and he said that the BBC used to give them a booklet of how you made documentaries, and you're not allowed to say your opinion, you're not allowed to say how you feel, you have to write in a very objective way. Obviously, that changed with time because there's no such thing as objectivity and. There is always a form, you know, of being subjective just by the angle of the camera. So from that and from that story being personal and me wanting to find this kind of utopia or love or this space, uh, you know, I play very much in the foreground that subjectivity. And that's what I was reaching for, actually. Yeah. I was reaching for you in the film and the story that you're writing of yourself in the film. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, in documentaries, we're always like, we choose characters we mm. like, we choose points of views we like, mm. or points of views we agree with. It's not so much as searching for the truth, I think, but it's telling a human story. When you start searching for the truth, you start playing God, and I don't like that. <laughs> and I don't think it's possible to actually portray <laughs> No, there's it. always, it's related yeah. when you see films, it's yeah. like these documentaries are going to save the world. You yeah. know, there's, so suddenly the director becomes a savior, like a Jesus figure or something. I don't, the director is always, uh, I think, um, is at the level of their characters. They don't know more, and to get the characters to open up this much, you have to be as as well opening up to them as much as they are to you. It's like a human relationship. And um, we're in total agreement. But I do, I mean, I want to play devil's advocate and sort of start, uh, perhaps people can start asking their questions. I want to play devil's advocate in saying that even though we totally agree that no photograph can give you an objective view of what, you know, of what, of something, because it is somebody else's view, right, or film or documentary, um, this all stands against the will to document Palestine unless it is forgotten, so that much of the story, much of the narrative has to, uh, uh, comes to us through the structure of remembering Right, of remembering and experiencing and the, sub- and the personal subjectivities that in the case of Palestinians can be generalized now to universal experience of dislocation, which is something very important that you said. Mm. So I want to pull back a little bit and uh, uh, please join me in uh, any questions. Yes, thank you for a beautiful film. And I was particularly taken with um, how you also make us, while looking for this space, you make us feel uh, slightly breathless and suffocated at certain points in the film. 
And I wondered if you could talk about two choices that you make. Um, one is there were a couple of scenes where you cut away from the interviews, and you, uh, there's a kind of a hurtling camera that goes into a field of flowers or chasing goats or, um, you know, you go into this field with the stump, tree stumps. And um, instead of panning out and giving us a sense of expanse, there's either a picture or a photo or we come back in. And I kind of felt a little, you know, with, I felt withdrawn when you, when you did, did that. So I was just wondering about those the cuts that you make between the interviews. And the other very specific scene that made me so uncomfortable was the long time that you held your camera on Lila, who was, you know, the, the young woman who is so eloquent. And then you ask her, how do you get up every day and do this again? Mm. And then her husband looks at her, and she says, it's a difficult question. And then they were, we're there for quite a bit. And you, you know, held that moment for us. So I'm just wondering about whether you were trying to create a kind of experience of also the, the occupation. Hmm. I don't know how you felt. That, I mean, that's, I think, you know, a lot of people would see that image and read it in a different way. But there, I liked the awkwardness and the silence and the hesitation in my characters. And I wanted to keep that in, in terms of the, the section in Layla. I think they, they, in the real, you know, when I was shooting in my material, I had a lot of answers that I could have used. But I think their eyes and their body language uh, gave the answer, even though they could not verbalize it. Um, so that's cinema, in a way, when you're... When you've had, you know, if the image is saying something, there's no need for extra layers. In all art, uh, you know, in all design or art, if you can reach a certain point, you know, to say what you want from some, you don't need to add extra and extra. In terms of the other images which make you feel uncomfortable, like you said, detach, I'm assuming, right? Well, that's my personal camera there, and they were there was clearly from the start differentiation in the treatment of the camera. One was my inner world, and then the other one was also my inner world or my the world I was searching for, but it was outside the eye, let's say, the first person. So um, I don't know, sometimes... In Palestine, you don't have that view. You don't have the horizon, or you don't have the... Um, you have to find in your... You have to find your world in the small details. Because if you look far, it's quite painful. Um, I wanted to also actually ask a question about uh, Layla. All of your characters were gorgeous, but she in particular... Um, said something that was very haunting in the film and, and a bit sad, um, which is the, the part where she was talking about how, you know, Zionism is gone. It's already an anachronism, and it's just a matter of time. It will disappear on its own, basically. Um, but I'm more concerned about Palestine, and how will it, you know, how will we deal after Zionism is gone? How will we build our society? You know, what will it look like? Um, it really felt very heavy 
that that moment. And I wonder if that is is um, a concern that you had also that you shared with her after interviewing and traveling and seeing and making it to the sea, or do you have more of an optimism um, about the kind of society that people will be able to build? I mean, the kind of society that we want to build, I think, as Palestinians, we're not really... We didn't get to that point of discussion, to be honest, independently from the political leaders discussing. Everyone's, you know, discussing what, what they call Palestinian territories. You keep hearing this. I mean, that does not really reflect what 98% of the Palestinians feel or want. So I think in terms of contemporary discussion, we have not gotten to that point. And you've got a lot of people, Obama from one side, King Hussein from another, they're all like, you, the Palestinian state, but we don't really want that. There's something else we want. We believe in, most people believe in, the, you know, the, the, the geographic, the old historic Palestine of all of it. So it's quite interesting. So I think there's a lot of things we're not discussing, and part of the occupation is dividing um, the land and dividing the Palestinian narrative. So Layla very much reflects me. Layla... Um, I hadn't met Layla before I went to Palestine. I had known the characters. And um, when I went there and I started talking to her, she was at the University of Concordia, I think, doing her PhD, and then she got kicked out because she demonstrated against Netanyahu coming to her school. So the school kicked her out of her program. And that's when she went to Palestine. And Layla, in a way, is a similar story to me because she had always dreamt of going and visiting and then she got there and she realized, I think, that it's not this perfect utopia. But what I really like about Leila is she holds these two worlds very powerfully, you know? She's on one side very calm and like looks like the Madonna and then on the other side you feel she's really in pain. And I think that's, uh, again, very, very powerful to be able to live in that um, space or in that country or under that occupation. Leila lives in Nazareth. And still be able to feel the pain and feel the joy. And, but the pain is for sure extremely there. I mean, there is a lot of things that are extremely painful. But what I did with all my characters is, it's, you know, I've, I, in Jerusalem when I screened this, a guy said, it's not, why, why don't you have a happy ending? <laughs> and I found it quite, you know, shocking that I said to him, you know what, even if all of Palestine is liberated and what happened in Yarmouk refugee camp happened and is happening, that doesn't deserve, you know, then the film shouldn't have a happy ending. So what I'm trying, what I feel is, it's not, we have to um, really look at our reality and see both the pain and the, the sorrow and the sweetness. The dream is not, uh, if we keep the dream, you know, packed in this perfect-looking package, I think we're going to lose Palestine, to be honest. 
Because if you want, you know, if you want to do anything, if you want to graduate from here, you have to sit and, you know, study and do these annoying exams and things like this. Really? <laughs> I hate exams. <laughs> so you have, have to, yeah, you have to go through both sides of anything to achieve something. And I don't understand how we, 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 I mean, probably this happens with a lot of things, you know, this um, putting something on a pedestal, our dreams on pedestals, because we're scared to actually go in there, either lose them or either realize that, that we had mistakes or, and face our dreams in a, because we're scared to maybe lose our history. I don't know what we're scared of, really. But I think it's very important to look at both sides, to say that the dream actually has things that we've lost, yeah. I mean, you go to Palestine and you see these villages, you know, like I have a scene in there that I put for all my Jordanian friends, Palestinians around the world in diaspora who think that Jaffa, Jaffa is covered in, with, in, with orange groves. I went to Jaffa. I, the only orange grove, you know, uh, grove, orchard I found, a drug dealer, the biggest drug dealer in Jaffa <laughs> owns that orchard. And I went to his house. And I went back to my dad, you know, who's very educated. I said, by the way, there are no, orange, uh, no more orange orchards anymore. FYI. So, I mean, how can... I don't understand how you can think of making your dream reality when you still think that Yafa is covered in orange orchards today in 2015. But you have to, I mean, I have to intervene here, sorry, may I? I mean, this is the new generation. Exactly, I I think we have to bring that out because we need to remember the generation that left in 48 and 67 and so on. And they really did come with the feeling that they had left their orange orchard. Yeah, and and we important. heard, our generation, we just got sick of t- and tired of hearing about it. That's, I think, where we need to stand up. Oh, but I have reality. a special relationship with my dad. Well, I don't like to treat him as if he's old. Well, yes, <laughs> but you have to remember that for him, it is, it is his reality. It is his reality. It's not just his dream. His dream is to return and see it. But his reality is those, you know, orange trees that he left behind. Right, and that he doesn't want to see or believe have disappeared. No, I think he'll have more strength seeing. I think, I'm talking about generate. I think it's very important we talk to that generation. We confront them to understand history, to understand what happens, to understand the silence we've had from that generation, the pain, and to understand that, you know, it wasn't the fact that they felt they lost, more that they were in pain. So these are important emotions for the new generation to understand, you know. Like, I remember when I went to Nablus, my family is from Nablus, so I called my dad two weeks after I was in Palestine. I said, listen, I'll tell you something. I really didn't like Nablus. And he said to me, yeah, it's not very nice. I said, so 60 years it took you to tell me that? <laughs> you always had amazing stories, Nablus, Nablus, Nablus. And now you tell me, yeah, it's not that nice. <laughs> so it was quite funny. You know, it's uh, not quite funny, but it's interesting how, again, it's the idea of the nostalgic, how it meets reality, and then maybe bounces back to a new form of nostalgia that looks just a little bit more real. I really like that. And uh, 
Leila says that something I did with most of the characters is they say this something that's very quite hard and real and then they say a little sentence. Leila said something really important at the end of that very intense. She said we're like a mosaic and I really like that. I really like the fact that this mosaic can create diversity, can create a really rich story. And uh, that, for me, this is the way I see Palestine moving forward, is understanding the different components of this mosaic. And somehow there is a united narrative, even though everyone's been all over the globe, scattered, uh, the occupation walls, checkpoints. But the power is in the one narrative. So I think this is brilliant. Yeah. So it's, I know it's intense, but it kind of ends up somewhere that takes you somewhere else. Um, I think your comment a moment ago about the romanticism and sort of thought of what something is is not always what it is in reality. And I'm wondering how you view um, your work as a, as a filmmaker, as a director, as, a, as an artist in Jordan, um, which is uh, the vast majority is Palestinian, and how you see Jordanian society evolving forward given the great tragedy that's happening all around you in the Middle East. Jordan is a very hard place to talk about. I don't know. It's, um, there's a lot of racism in Jordan, to be honest, but it's really it's not an issue of racism. I don't know. When you have people that have been become used to racism, when I say racism from the Jordanian ruling power to the Palestinian majority, it's obviously politics and econo- you know, economical status and all that. And, but it's a very um, tense place. And I've been insulted on several occasions for... Uh, for describing myself as Palestinian. It's not the right time. People are pretty... um, are being uh, played in the wrong directions now in the Middle East, I think, where it's very patriotic sometimes. You see that in Egypt sometimes. Um, I think people have been um, extremely insecure... There is really, um, because of the regimes, because of politics, and um, it's become like survival of the fittest. Okay, well, thank you so much again for this beautiful film and for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.